Hey guys, this is Zach. Uh, I just want to take a quick minute before we start the episode. Um, as most of you guys know, Hurricane Harvey hit the coast of Texas and has just been wreaking destruction on a number of cities, including Houston. Uh, and you know, I, you know, I, there, there's not a lot that, or at least you know, all the way here, you know, outside of the state, it's tough to to feel like you can really help out. But uh, I wanted to real, real quickly read through a couple organizations that you can donate to. And really challenge you to give something, even if it's a little bit. Um, you know, here at Cinematary, we're all you know either in college or recently out of college. We don't have much money, but I mean, if you guys give something and and, and you know tweeted us or sent us a Facebook message and let us know, we'll try to uh, you know match that and and give as well because you know we want to help out as much as we can because these people are dealing with something that's just. Uh, Unfathomable. Um, so here's a, a couple, a number of organizations that you can uh, go to. The first one is Greater Houston Community Foundation. They're helping with just uh, giving people a place to live, giving them the essentials, you know, food, water, etc. You can find them at ghcf. Again, that's ghcf.org. The next one is United Way Houston. They're helping with shelters. Uh, they're at unitedwayhouston.org. Again, that's unitedwayhouston.org. The next one is the Coalition for the Homeless in Houston and Harris County. Uh, this is helping people, you know, helping locate people and give them some place to stay because, because again, this hurricane is just uh, just blown through this this county. That is uh, homelesshouston.org. Again, homelesshouston.org. Org. Uh, you can go to their page and they have a donation tab. The next one is Houston Food Bank. Uh, you know, th- just th- anything there will help. You know, people are sending food from all over. You can go to HoustonFoodBank.org to help there. Uh, the SPCA of Texas is also helping to evacuate pets. Uh, a number of pets have been you know, just displaced because of the hurricane. Go to S- SPCA.org. Again, SPCA.org to help there. And finally, uh, Houston Texans defensive lineman J.J. Watt has been putting together this fund, uh, the Houston Caring Fund fun it's currently almost a 10 million dollars and it's rising i think drake just gave two hundred thousand dollars um but you can go to uyou caring.com slash victims of hurricane harvey dash nine one five oh five three again that's uyou caring.com slash victims of hurricane harvey dash nine one five oh five three to help there and that is the jj watt foundation uh all right guys thank you so much i really hope that you'll consider helping you know helping the victims of this of this hurricane again it's very devastating and uh regardless of if if it affects your family or not i feel like um it's just our duty as human beings to to help others that are you know struggling like this um but let's go ahead and get into the show Welcome to episode 159 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with... Reed. Nathan Smith. Definitely more. Reed Ramsey. We'll add that. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> that is my last name. <laughs> um, 
All right, you, you screwed me up. Uh, we've got a we got a normal episode today. Uh, in part one, we're gonna be talking about movies we saw this week, and in part two, we are joined by uh, UT University of Tennessee professor Chris Holmland to talk about the 1974 John Waters film Female Trouble. It's a good chat. Lots of lots of good you know goodies as we uh, go through Chris's book, which is called Female Trouble: A Queer Film Classic, available on Amazon. But let's go ahead and get into movies that we saw this week. Um, I think the first one, the big one we wanted to talk about was a a new release from the directing duo known as the Safdie Brothers. And that is Good Time. And it stars uh, Robert Pattinson and Benny Safdie, as well as Jennifer Jason Lee and Barkhad Abdi, who is the uh, I'm the Captain Now guy from <laughs> Captain Phillips, which he kind of has a scene where he's kind of like doing a similar thing. And I was like, I swear to God, if he says I'm the Captain Now, I'm going to lose my mind. Whoa, I didn't even know that was him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's the, the guy. Wow. I'm, the I'm Captain even now. more looking forward to seeing this movie now. <laughs> Um, but yeah, thanks. I am the good time now. There you go. You should have said that. <laughs> um, but good time. It's about uh, Robert Pattinson and Benny Safdie play these two brothers. Uh, Benny Safdie's character has a is mentally handicapped, and um, they Robert Pattinson brings him along, and they go and rob a bank near the beginning of the film. And then while they're trying to kind of get away and the police are chasing them, uh, the Benny Safdie character trips and, and Barbara Pattinson leaves him behind. So he's arrested and Robert Pattinson just, you know, we pick up, we pick up with him trying to get enough money to pay for his brother's release, but he doesn't have the money. So he's trying to find pretty much going, he's going around New York, finding random ways to come up with ten thousand dollars within the next few hours uh yeah i don't know i I think that's the that's about what's what happens um but yeah reed and nathan what did you guys think of good time nathan you want to kick it off sure i uh like this movie a lot i have seen um just the the feature that the safties did before this heaven knows what which i also liked but uh was a little cooler on than a lot of people um it's definitely a very raw and gritty movie that lets you know whether you want to watch the rest of it or not within the first five minutes. Um, and I found that the sort of rougher, um, more obviously realist style on that movie wasn't quite as much my bag as I think the style in Good Time. Both are shot by Sean Price Williams, who I think is... Um, far and away probably the best cinematographer actively working today or at least one of the best or at least kind of one of the the best younger cinematographers Um, and they have both very similar and very different styles I mean both are are really rooted in this um, devotion to to the stories of real people and the type of people who you may not normally see in in a movie theater particularly um you know, it's it's amazing that that good time is something that's playing widely in a lot of theaters because it it, it has this cast of, of many of non-professional actors. Many of them are, are have never acted before, but are regardless of whether they're professional actors or not, are characters that um, in terms of maybe economic situation, immigration status, background, just general background. Um, 
that you would not see in a major motion picture, um, or at least one that's getting a wide release. And so that this does have that commitment to realism and um, that very lived-in quality. And I mean, the Safties grew up in New York. They live in New York. Um, talking to friends who are from Queens and and uh, from Long Island, there are a lot of places in this movie that are very recognizable. Like the whole Adventureland amusement park is kind of a, I guess, sort of an in joke for a lot of Long Islanders. So seeing places like that that may not appear in other movies, um, I think is is very refreshing for a lot of people. Uh, but I also think it works if you're like you know if you're not if you didn't grow up in New York. I mean, it has a you see places you see places that I think most people can recognize as being sort of real places like the, this, the, the really tense, uncomfortable, but, but really wonderful scene in the uh, bail bonds office, just this kind of like hectic catatonic um, all over the place quality. So there is that realism, but it also has, you know, all of these colors and, and this very dreamy psychedelic quality, I think sort of the best, just, simple take that I've seen uh, of this movie comes from my friend Adam Katzman, who you can follow on Twitter at Maltese Rebel. He has a great, great Twitter account. He said that this is sort of like Hype Williams Belly, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, a really underappreciated American classic. But uh, instead of starring Nas or DMX, it, it stars the rapper Lil Peep. Uh, and I think Robert Pattinson is really uh, good as a very scummy guy who maybe you in certain instances understand things that he does. He's, he's very, um, in certain ways he's very loyal and he really wants to protect his brother. But in other moments, he's very willing to sell people down the river. Um, and the Safdies, uh, there have been some critics, uh, who I will not name who have criticized this movie for its portrayal of race. I think those criticisms are really off base and unfounded. Um, because I think the thing is, is that, um, this, this is a movie that recognizes how our world is and who, uh, that recognizes that, that white people of, of all classes oftentimes, uh, exploit and sell out people of color for their own personal gain, which is what Robert Pattinson's character does several times in this movie. And I don't think the movie is like, even though you're sitting with him and you're going on this wild ride with him, you're not supposed to sympathize with everything he he does. You're not supposed to... Um, the Safties are not endor- endorsing everything that he does. Um, it's just like, this is what this character would do. This character who lives moment to moment, action to action, check to check, job to job. Um, this is what he would probably do. So I like how this movie is very grounded in realism, but shows that you can make a realist movie without having some kind of like documentary aesthetic that you can still explore um, these fantastical worlds and set pieces and have all these colors and and wild vivid imagery um, but still be have some connection to reality and I also real quick because I've been talking a lot before I pass over to somebody else I want to give a particular shout out to the actor who I think is the best far and away in this movie, and that's Buddy Duress, who was in, uh, first in the Safdies, last movie, heaven knows what, but also appeared this year in Dustin Gaidefa's Person to Person, um, 
and he he plays a, a supporting character named Ray, I believe, um, who kind of gets swept up in um, Connie, the Robert Pattinson character's misadventures unintentionally. Um, and he has this great scene where he's telling a story about how his last 24 hours have been like absolutely crazy. And for me, that the, this moment when he's telling this story and then it flashes back to 24 hours before and he's like cracking open a Sprite bottle and drinking out of it. And it like zoom, it does this very Scorsese, like in Goodfellas zoom in on him in that moment is when sort of the movie clicked for me. Um, and when everything really came together and buddy addresses a fascinating story. There are some great interviews that are out with him. He's been kind of in and out of Rikers Island for the past couple years. Um, but it just has like a really magnetic screen presence and, and a really, um, this, 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 kind of tact and grit to him some people have uh sort of uh, compared him to to joe pesci or somebody like that um and he's not as cartoonish as joe pesci but he does sort of have that quality where it's like you believe really believe he is the character that he's playing and that's because he has kind of lived a lot of those experiences um so read zach i want to know what you guys think about this movie yeah um just to lean on buddy to rest that he was one of the highlights for me for sure he was terrific um which all the performances I thought were, I think I'm a little colder on this movie than most people, but that has less to do with me disliking it and more to do with everyone just loving it. So take that as you will. But, um, uh, there's a lot I really appreciate about this movie. The opening kind of reveals the, how it's not going to be that documentary aesthetic that you are talking about how some movies are, uh, go too far to that realism where, we have this opening dialogue with um, Ben so- Benny Softy and a therapist trying to work through some of his um, speech problems and mental issues that he's having. And the key part of this is when Robert Pattinson comes flying through the door and the camera does this real intense zoom in kind of on his face. And that's kind of when it grabbed me and I'm like, hey, this style is not just run-of-the-mill indie stuff and even during the start of that scene that's framed interestingly and tightly and i really like that um so just from the get-go it's got a really unique uh look which i appreciated um for me it's more the story is so fast-paced for so much of the runtime that when it does kind of stop or die down it just dies flat Uh, that, that was at least my experience i just like as soon as it came down to a conversation with robert pattinson and another character it just completely died. Um, I don't think that scene in the car with Buddy explaining his past 24 hours would work at all if he was just saying that is kind of the best way to put it. It's instead we get a visual depiction of everything in his past 24 hours. So those other moments through the movie where we don't get that, where we're just getting dialogue, that's where it kind of fell flat for me. Although the um, bail bond scene I think is really good. And Jennifer Jason Lee is amazing. She's so funny in this movie. Um, but no, I think a lot of the characters are really kind of refreshingly unsympathetic, if that makes sense. Like Jennifer Jason Lee's character and Robert Pattinson's character and Buddy Duress's characters, all of them, they don't want you to care about them. Maybe Jennifer Jason Lee does more, but you're not going to care about them. And I think in terms of race, it's more of a critique on whiteness than it is in any way sticking out to me poorly. Um... For me, my really the only thing that kind of killed this movie for me was the last little segment, which a lot of people are responding 
very positively too. And I don't want to, uh, spoil that necessarily, but I just, I found maybe the last like bit of this movie, the last five minutes or so very disingenuous and that kind of hurt it for me. Cause the whole movie is fast paced, kind of cruel, um, in an interesting way, but, um, still kind of cruel. The characters do really horrible things at times. Um, and then all of a sudden we're presented with a scenario that seems out of nowhere. It doesn't seem to fit the rest of the movie at all. And it just seemed really disingenuous and very, um, I don't know, manipulative to me. And that really like that, that bit hurt the movie more for me than anything else. Um, which I don't know if I don't, it doesn't seem like most people are having that experience. So I will say that. I will say I really like the, uh, one of Tricks Point Never Iggy Pop song that this ends with, which I totally forgot oh, yeah. to mention this, but the soundtrack by One of Tricks Point Never, who's one of my favorite musicians, is just like amazing. And if he is not at least nominated for an Oscar, then that institution is more of a sham than it already is. Uh, but I really like that song, but I do agree. I think the ending is a little weird, and it's a little weird how that extended shot like the credits roll over it yep. while it's still happening. That's just, I don't know the, the, the construction of it was a little strange to me. I don't, <clears throat> I think it probably worked for me a little better than it did for you, but I, I do agree that it is a little odd maybe. Yeah. And with the credits, like credits kind of naturally take someone out of the movie for a moment. Yeah. So when you're, it, it made it even more so feel like it wasn't a part of the movie. It made it feel like an afterthought or like, a, oh, let's please the crowd here. Or I don't know. That was how I felt. And I mean, I did find it moving. So maybe that's I was responding negatively to my own emotion. I don't know. Uh, I, I want to read real quickly this this review on Letterboxd because I really liked this um, line, this this the way he described kind of the 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 aesthetic of the of good time and hat tip to nathan since i think he was the first person who liked it this it's the review by alex inquist i believe i don't know if i said his name correctly he's one of my friends but i don't know how to say his last name and i feel bad about that (laughs) anyway the the, challenges of knowing people through the internet I guess. <laughs> we'll go with it. Um, but the line he has is, uh, Romance Apocalypse will be a good title for the eventual Safdie Brothers retro. What separates them from any number of young dudes emulating 1970s new American cinema is that they aren't dutifully replicating a particular aesthetic so much as an approach to film, trying to tap into an energy that I think they come by honestly. That early Scorsese thing of mainlining moviness itself. They can't help but get high off it too. I think that's why they're drawn to stories about addicts and hustlers and resistant to imbuing them with a larger significance. Um, and I really liked, I, I think he, I think he's 100% right, where this movie definitely, you can feel um, kind of that early Scorsese aesthetic to it, where, you know, it reminds me a lot of Mean Streets or Taxi Driver, just in terms of its colors and its and how it's, and its story and kind of how its, its characters are structured. But it's not like a lot of these... Um, 
of these directors today who, you know, naturally they, they grow up on these movies and, and that's what they're kind of trying to emulate whenever they make their own. But I, I think, I think Alex, it's a, 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 you know, a great point where they, they, they clearly revere the, these early Scorsese movies as well, but they're not taking them and, you know, copying and pasting them, but putting in their own elements. They're, they're going, all right, we're, we're going to take the, we're going to take the energy of those movies and put it into and then copy and paste that into our, you know, into what we're trying to do. And I think that that's there's something more, you know, genuine about that because it's not it's it's not that I, I think we think we've talked about it a lot on, on the podcast before, but it's not that winking to the camera, you know, going, you know what that is because you have this, you know, however long list of, of movie history this is this is um taking you know taking that taking those lessons and creating something wildly new with it but also staying true to to what they that you know they came from and i and i that's kind of how i felt with good time i i really loved um i think that this is some of the best work that robert pattinson's done up to this point i loved how you know his his kind of his eyes and the face worked um it's it was funny i was thinking about after i left there there's this kind of conceit that they use in the in the television show sherlock where when he's thinking you see all these words come up on the screen and and so it's it's like it's like you're trying to like <laughs> mentally like, like so it, it's showing us visually what he's mentally going through in his mind but when but with but with robert pattinson in this movie he kind of has those moments where you can see his brain turning and he's trying to think of what his next move needs to be but of course they don't you know they're not using the kind of those the, the those kind of kitschy cute visual cues it, it, it you just have to watch his face and you can almost see him you know you going through all the options but of course you know you you don't see it visually and i loved watching how he would kind of like sift through d- different things that he wanted to do and then he would choose one and even though you're trying to think ahead and, and guess what he wants to do next. Uh, at the same time, I had no idea. And that's what he, he always kind of kept me going a step ahead, even though uh, it's, I don't know. It, it never seemed like, it never seemed like it slowed down to me at all. It always seemed like it had this, this momentum that was um, both kind of light, but also very propulsive. You know, there was, there was times where they would ramp it up and, and, uh, there, it would feel like it was moving along quickly, but it would also give these time for these much more quiet, uh, you know, softer character moments. It was the movie. It was. It's honestly so far this year one of my definitely in my top three favorites that I've seen. I agree, Zach. I I think the point about it being it's about the energy of of like seventies movies or whatever, and not the style yeah. or even really the content. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's. That's like that's what's compelling people about it is that rhythm and that energy. Yeah, and I and I and I that's the 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 takeaway I have from that also is I wish more directors could learn that lesson. Where it's I mean it, every once in a while it's fine if you want to have this winky camera moment um, that you know reminds us of whether it's a more you know a moment in cinema or just a kind of a pop culture moment. I, for for example, I know Nathan we talked about the the Ferris Bueller thing in Spider. Spider-Man where they they start doing the Ferris Bueller running you know 
running through the, the the yards thing but then they have to show you know the actual movie because it's i think they think we're stupid enough not to realize what they're referencing um and that's it, it, you know it's it's whatever it's fine but it's also frustrating because it kind of it, it it treats us like we're stupid and i and i liked good time because it took elements of movies that we that that, that for the most part people like but it took it took that energy and it was like let's let's make a wholly new original thing but you know you're going to be able to come to it with enough you know with, uh, with enough knowledge because you're you're familiar with how these movies go but this is also going to be something fresh and new and i think just real quick before we talk about another movie um one of the things that i think is really key to how the safties work uh, i listen to the recent film comment podcast episode about good time, which was a recording of a Q and a that the Safties and uh, Robert Pattinson and Ronald Bronstein who co-wrote and co-edited this movie and heaven knows what, and also did one of the best American independence of the past decade um, frown land, which is kind of hard to see, but if you ever get a chance to see it, I really recommend it. Um, one of the things they talked about is how in their previous movies, just because they were working really small budget, really small crew, you know, a lot of times they were breaking the law, uh, getting certain shots and not, you know, not doing it the, the right way and not getting permits or anything. And even though for this movie, just because it was more of a uh, kind of a bigger deal and you had, you know, you had these professional actors and the star, they did have permits and authorization and had cops there. And actually a lot of the cops in the movie are real cops. Um, but there's like that one scene where they're running through the mall and, um, Gosh, I can't remember the Benny Safdie character's name, but he runs through a glass door um, and they had a cop there who was just like, okay, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. And then they all just the whole crew just like runs in very quickly as if they're sort of stealing this shot and as if they're not supposed to be there and gets it really quick. And the cop is just standing there and he's like, you know, you guys like you're allowed to be here, right? Like you don't you don't have to act like you're breaking the law. But I think that's one of the key things is like they they make everything and film everything as if they're breaking the law. You know, they're not. They're not like it's it's very much reflected in their filmmaking that they're kind of working at this fast clip. And I mean, sure, maybe that means the movie is is claustrophobic and messy. But, you know, that's that's what they want. And I think they're the way they work reflects that. And um, and that also like reflects the world of the characters and the world of the movie, because all of these people are moving very quickly and are moving just from one moment to the next and can't really afford to think about the long term. And so the Safdies are working in a model that's similar where they're not maybe thinking about this full big thing, even if they have fleshed out these characters and written the screenplay, they're kind of working scene to scene, shot to shot, location to location, doing what they can, working fast and essentially breaking the law. And I think that kind of uh, is, is sort of ingenious in a way. So, yeah. Um, but good time. It's in theaters now. If it's around you, I recommend checking it out. It is. It's a good time because I'm sure that's never been said. <laughs> uh, Nathan, I'm gonna toss it over to you because I know you wanted to real quickly talk about another new release. Yeah. So last week, Zach, you talked about the new the new joint from Steven Soderbergh, Logan Lucky, um, which I I think I felt similarly on. Like I, I enjoyed it and I liked it, but wasn't necessarily blown away by it and and um, didn't like it quite as much as 
as I uh, wanted to. Um, but there were a few things that I just kind of wanted to add about it. Um, I think, uh, you know, Lydia was asking, like, what kind of movie is this? Um, and I think you, uh, what, you compared it to Raising Arizona, um, which I think it is a very, like, in kind of in the way that its characters speak and in, in, in the dialogue and character traits and stuff. It is very similar to the Coens. Um, but I think for me, what really set Logan Lucky apart is that unlike the Coens, I feel like uh, this movie really loves its characters and isn't really cynical about them in any way. Um and I think that for me where this movie falls flat is is it has a sort of weird pacing and it's very long. And like you said last week, you know, there aren't really a whole lot of like action sequences or anything. And that was weird for me. But then I was kind of thinking that so much of this movie is about how its characters speak and that the way that this movie sort of like bumbles along is almost narratively a reflection of how its characters speak i don't know maybe that's just like me trying to rationalize and not create structure to myself but i think that this movie i think there are a lot of interesting connections between this and and good time because even though this movie is you know it's a comedy um and uh, is very obviously a comedy. I, a lot of people haven't liked Seth MacFarlane in this movie, but I think Seth MacFarlane basically playing like Richard Branson, but as an energy drink tycoon, is brilliant. Brilliant casting. I think it's just more. I think it's just more like shocking because it's just you're watching this thing, and then Seth MacFarlane shows up with a mustache, long yeah. hair, and a British accent, and you're just like, why is he here? <laughs> I also think most people probably were just like, oh, Seth MacFarlane, I'm just not going to like that part of this movie. Whereas I saw Seth MacFarlane in the trailer and I was like, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready for the MacFarlane sense. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it to happen. Um, but I, and so you have, you know, stuff like that in the movie that is very unreal and is very ridiculous. But what I like about this movie and how, is how so many of its characters, especially Channing Tatum's characters are smarter than the other characters expect, but also smarter than the audience expects. And I think you sort of expect, oh, he's like this Southern working class dude, that this is, thing is going to go wrong. And the plan does go wrong in certain ways. But then you find towards the end, I'm not really going to spoil the specifics, but that a lot of the things that you originally thought were going wrong were actually planned by him in, in the first place. And that he's actually smarter than literally everyone else in the film. And I think that's really neat just to, to see that sort of character like be really smart. And it's not that he has some superpower or is some, I don't know, like idiot savant. It's that he is actually just like pr pretty good at his job. And all of the characters in this movie who are good at what they do... Um, they are all just kind of like working class characters who have been hired to run institutions. And because they've been hired to run institutions, they know how those those machines and systems work. And so then they know how they can sort of um, get back at, at the people controlling those institutions. I think another good example is like the whole prison subplot, which is both really funny. And I think Dwight Yoakam, who is always a delight to see in movies, is really good as the prison warden. But it's like these prisoners come together and essentially like 
temporarily hold the prison hostage, but that's because they are basically the laborers who keep this place running and they know how it works. So they know how they can take advantage of it. And that kind of extends to the rest of the, the characters in the movies too, in the movie too. I mean, Channing Tatum, you know, he worked at the speedway. So he's the guy who has been hired to be in the trenches and he's just got his eyes open. And so he knows how it all works. And so I think that's something that really kind of speaks to just, just America, you know, and, and I guess more internationally, just kind of like under capitalism, you know, it's, you've got this, this working class who are time and again, underestimated, but it's like, these are the people who are running everything, who are running all of our institutions, all of our systems. So it's at the end of the day, it's like, they know how things work and, and whether or not they're book smart or, or, you know, politicians or lawyers or whatever, that doesn't matter. You know, maybe they're not super rich. That doesn't matter. They still have a lot of know-how. And I appreciate that this movie recognizes that, but that it's also, it's that it's, that it's funny and, and lighthearted and that it ends on a very sweet note. Um, and also having characters too, like Adam driver's character, you know, uh, served, uh, two tours and, I can't remember if it was Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, And just having characters like that where it's like, that is not his entire identity as a character. You know, it's not like this movie's American Sniper or something, but it's just like, oh yeah, like he's a vet and like, yeah, whatever. That's just like those little details and those little realities of life are just kind of inserted in there. Um, And they're not, you know, the fact that these characters are poor, that they're Southern or, you know, that they maybe don't have a college education. Those, those things don't define them. They're part of who they are. But uh, um, I, that's what I liked about Logan Lucky. I mean, it, it was <clears throat> a little underwhelming, um, but I think it's still definitely worth seeing. And I'm very sad that it's that it's not gotten the reception it deserves because it does kind of in some ways leave room open for a sequel and i would love to see the logan clan continue on yeah that's that's, i'm really surprised that it didn't take off more because i think it's a movie that i don't know that people would that would respond to it's kind of just this fun fun time at the movies that yeah uh you know, we've been. I don't know. I think that there, it, 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 it's, in one way, it's like what you're usually getting in a blockbuster, but at the same time, it's also very unique in its own way. Um, and it has these very, like you've, like you've said, but fully realized characters from Channing Tatum to Daniel Craig to even like Riley Keough and Katie Holmes. Like they're all very fully realized people. Um, and they go over, they go through the story. And like you said, there could be a second movie if they wanted it, wanted to, but at the same time, this feels like a very completed story. So it's a satisfying, it's a satisfying, you know, com, you know, 90 ish minutes, um, no, yeah. it's like two hours. It's two hours. Yeah, that's one of the things I wasn't crazy about is that it's oh. so long. Oh. I didn't have huh. I learned something today. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, Logan Lucky. It's in theaters now. But we will be back. We will be talking female trouble with Chris Holmland in part two. So stick around. Hey, Cinematariots. This is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time either. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a review on iTunes, four or five stars only, (laughs) to help us reach more listeners per the algorithm gods. 
Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send us an email at Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, so we can hear from you guys for a change. I'd especially like to hear if you're a human and not an android who also likes Blade Runner, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie you would really like to hear our opinions on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes of the show. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions that we bring to you guys every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and please share with your friends and family. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. with part two of episode 159 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be concluding our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1974's Female Trouble. Uh, joining us today to talk about the film is uh, Professor Chris Holmland from the University of Tennessee. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for, for talking with us. It's a delight to be here chatting with you about a queer film classic. <laughs> 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 yeah, and and for for those who want to uh, to read Chris's book, it's Female Trouble, a queer film classic. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. It's a well. well let's go. We can get into that. The first question, though, I had um, before we kind of dig into the movie was, um, I want you to talk a little bit about John Waters because uh, <laughs> it seems like nowadays uh, he's kind of more of a personality. Like that's I, f- I feel like how most people know him as this this personality that that is. Is, is part of the indie film scene. Um, do you, would you mind t- kind of talking about him as, as a person and then maybe a little bit about his kind of working style? You go into a great detail in the book, but it seems like he really had this kind of singular way of, of, of constructing a movie. Constructing a movie and constructing his persona, I would say, <laughs> because the two yeah. have always been part and parcel of the same thing. And uh, I really want to stress how extremely knowledgeable he is about film. He watches all kinds of movies. The ones that he really doesn't like that much are Hollywood melodramas, things like Rocky, which is most hated film of all time at a certain point. Um, But John watches art film. He watches exploitation film. He's got all the hot tips on independent film. He's also very much of a fashionista. He emcees fashion shows. He emcees punk rock concerts. He is a stand-up comedian. And he's an artist and photographer. So Baltimore Museum of Art If you get a chance to go in 2018, we'll be doing a one-man show of his artwork. He is very multifaceted and very talented. And as my friend Ruby Rich, who edits Film Quarterly, says, he's probably the hardest working man in show business today. 
and I would agree. Uh, so I, I wanted to also talk about the Dreamlanders because you know, of course, they're they're central to to this movie, and it seemed like they worked a lot with with John Waters with a lot of his films. Um, do you mind you know talking about them as a group? I, I really enjoyed your description in the book where you you kind of just you know describe them. It seems like they they took a little time to all come together, and they were really a group of you know like minded you know quote freaks. Uh, but can you can you kind of talk about them as a group? Yeah, let me start by explaining what Dreamland is. Dreamland Studios was the name that John Waters gave to his very first short productions made with his 20-something-year-old friends when after he had been kicked out of NYU film school for smoking marijuana in one of the first school pot busts. Um, <laughs> Dreamland Studios was his bedroom in his parents' house then. And his parents were colossally worried about what he was going to turn out like, (laughs) as one might imagine, only to later be very impressed. So Dreamland Studios, then this group of freaks who were aspiring uh, hippies, yippies, and earlier beatniks um, called and started calling themselves the Dreamlanders after the first films did well in basements and bizarrely enough churches would give space <laughs> for him to show his shorts and they became a real hit for reasons that we all appreciate. If you were a Balta moron, as they say, <laughs> you liked these movies. <laughs> so the troupe is then a group of people, a fair number of whom had graduated from the Art Institute in Baltimore. Some of them were literally teenage pals of Waters. Waters met Divine, for example, through a fellow girlfriend of both of them. Divine was this overweight kid who was always bullied at school, but they had this fondness for movies and Divine jumped on the chance to dress up and act and found himself in Waters films. Um, A lot of the other ones, some of them didn't work at all. They were on disability, (laughs) which apparently they could get at the time. A few of them worked and made a pittance. Mick Stoll always worked. She was a little scornful about the others who just were on aid to the disabled. But (laughs) they they all were very talented and multi-talented, and they had a shared sense of humor. Uh, They went to the same bars. You know, it's like you do with your college friends. You go to the same bars. In their case, they smoked the same stuff. LSD was legal, so they tripped together. Uh, They became a network of interlocking circles that began to work together in various ways. So that's, that's the Dreamlanders. And They became very talented by this film. It was the eighth film they had made together. So they were by no means unprofessional. They were actors. So Rex Reed's infamous comment 
that John says, I'd like to think Rex thought this would help, that if you had a chance, you know, where do they come from? Where do they go when the sun goes down? Uh, and John used it on his marketing for this movie that I think this is the ethos that was Dreamlanders. They were just 100% committed to making John's pot-fueled fantasies happen. Well, that that seemed to be, you know, to kind of play into just the movie at large, because, you know, it, it seemed like the, the project itself, you know, when they were making it was very, very scrappy. It seemed like everybody was kind of all coming together and, and trying to, you know, make it barely. I know you, you, you had a lot of anecdotes about uh, you know, just kind of the shooting schedules and the, and the various places that they get, you know, a few hours or just a day to, to shoot a, a, a scene in. Uh, do you mind kind of going into detail about the uh, the kind of the behind the scenes of this movie? And do you feel like that that kind of played into the, you know, the unique personality of Female Trouble as a movie? Oh, absolutely, because it's a it's a real DIY project. At this point, there mm-hmm. was no support for film in Baltimore. There were just a few people who were making movies in Baltimore. They were experimental filmmakers and they're. The reason that they become so successful is that they kind of became Baltimore film. Um, so they did extensively rehearse any scene. And what you see when you watch the movie is just how frontal and theatrical it is, because John is learning to use the camera for the first time. He has a crew. So you have Dave Inslee, who now works on stuff like The Wire and uh, really big TV shows, just saying to John, John, you really shouldn't Zoom all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just hold, hold the frame. Um, so he's, he's learning to put things together. The thing that he always cared about was how the lines were delivered. And everybody told me the perfect way. I interviewed all of them separately. And that was a, a great tip that I got from his assistants in his office who promised me I could come back and interview them about what he's like to work for only after he's out of the way. (laughs) But but it was a great tip because people then spoke freely to me. And if he had been there, they would have deferred to what he had to say. So they all, he cared, he modeled how they were to say their lines. Every single one said the best way to see a John Waters movie would be to have him doing every part. (laughs) (laughs) But but uh, they brought their own physicality, as I point out. So some of the mink had ideas of how she was going to stand. She was already thinking about becoming an actor. She had worked, and Divine also had by this point already worked on stage. They worked with the Cockettes in San Francisco. They went on to work with Alternative Theater in New York. The other ones, someone like Mary Vivian Pierce, who plays the lovely Donna Dasher in the movie had been taking ballet. So she held herself regally in Mm. thinking of herself as a ballet dancer and, and so on and so forth. Um, So I think it is a scrappy project, but it's extremely rehearsed because they would shoot these things in one single take and they'd have pages and pages of dialogue and there wouldn't be edits in many of the scenes so you 
the editing does help move the film along, but you do get some of these real long takes, and and John would just write things into the script in terms of what he wanted. I want this car aerial here, and Vincent Piranha, the production and designer and art director, would say, you know, John, you shouldn't write these things into the script if you don't know how hard it's going to be to find them. And mm. John said, I told John that, and he said, oh, that would have fallen on deaf ears. <laughs> um, so he, he had his vision, and they were there to help him get his vision down adding their own bits to it as they went on and there the timing of the shoot he told me that for the most part he shot sequences in order but some things he shot out of order and some things he i don't want to spoil because it's one of the very best scenes in the film but there's there's a scene that involves near the beginning that involves an old mattress, if you remember this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. And, and that one they have to shoot out of order because it involves Divine playing two parts. And Divine was a really furry guy. So in between his parts to appear as a woman, he had to go home suddenly and shave his entire body. <laughs> so he came back apparently with razor nicks because it had been so hasty. But Divine was just the consummate trooper. So I recommend watching. I haven't spoiled the scene yet, but <laughs> I, I recommend. I think the first 10, 15 minutes of this movie are the best that John Waters has ever done. The comedy is so fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Divine is just so great as a teenage delinquent woman. Yeah, I, that's I was I was actually before we 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 got on, I was talking about how if they if he made like an hour and thirty minute movie that was just the first fifteen minutes where she's in high school, that would be one of the funniest movies ever because I, I was you know rolling just laughing the entire time when she was in class and eating a meatball sub and getting yelled at like it was just great even from the opening credits with the song it just it grips you like crazy i remember even the first time i saw it that song was stuck in my head for a couple of days (laughs) and reed were you what was your reaction the first time the first time i saw it i was um pretty disturbed but i enjoyed it and this time i really really liked it. it um i laughed i was ready to laugh a lot more this time so i did laugh a lot more (laughs) it does it Mm -hmm. catches you off guard the very first time i taught it i was like (gasps) (laughs) and uh i know i love it but how is how are students at ut going to react (laughs) one of the things that stuck out the uh, sorry the with the that credit sequence though uh it feels like, I mean, it sets the tone. The song especially sets the tone and kind of this amplified energy with the contrasting colors. But didn't a lot of like movies from the 70s kind of have that lead-in song that kind of brought you in to the scenario? So I wonder, yeah, if people had that extreme whiplash effect of with what the sequence conveyed and then the actual quality of everything that was going on itself. I I mean, as I say, he's a savvy filmmaker, so he's working within the context of the times very consciously. This movie's a cross between exploitation and underground in a lot of ways. Um, So the color, though, and I think the text design, Mm. the graphics of the 
credit sequence point towards where and what he does in his own artwork. So to write this book, I, I've seen every single book on John Waters, obviously. I interviewed everybody, and I went to his archives, so I, I, which are at Wesleyan University. By the way, they also, if anybody's interested, they also have Clint Eastwood's papers. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine... John Waters <laughs> meeting Clint Eastwood <laughs> at Wesleyan, which did happen. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm sure they both really respected each other, or at least John respected Clint's film. <laughs> 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 Clint has seen John's work. <laughs> I would, I'd want to see Clint Eastwood in a John Waters movie. That would, oh my goodness. It would make your day, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Especially after watching The Beguiled recently. <laughs> yeah, that'd be so good. The original Beguiled is so yes. much Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that's another that's another podcast. <laughs> that's the, yeah, definitely. Happy um, to do that. You meant- <laughs> you you mentioned before you, we talked a little bit about Divine, but I kind of wanted you to maybe expand a little bit on him as a performer. You know, it seemed like a lot of the reviews from that period really, you know, kind of marked him as the defining quality of the movie. Um, you know, what was what was he like as both the performer in Female Trouble, but also just as a personality off stage and, and as a member of, of this group that Waters had? Right. Good. I'm happy to talk about that. But afterwards, I really want you to ask me about the other people, because this is completely a collaborative project. And one of the things that I thought was so important was to give the other performers their due also. Divine, obviously, is was literally and figuratively a larger than life figure. (laughs) Uh, 300 pounds and then upwards towards the end of his life, dead in 1984. A performer who does plays both a female part in this film and a male part in this film. So the male part is a greaser who's a welder, lower class, disgusting, reprehensible, and teenage delinquent Don blossoms into being a criminal. So Don has a big character arc within the film as well. Divine's performance for me always Divine modeled himself in a lot of ways on Elizabeth Taylor. Divine would (laughs) say she has a little waste problem now and then. I have that problem too. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Divine, Divine's appetites were large. Divine loved action movies and he'd do them before. He, he was a really, really successful punk musical show person. So he was a kind of a drag queen monster who was on the hit charts especially in the UK and Germany around the time of this movie and then into the 70s. So you get this amazing energy from Divine's performance it has a range to it from doing impressions of teenage girls to being kind of a soap opera TV queen at one point to becoming the crazed criminal by the end of it. And that's divined simply as an actor, divine as someone who was sad that he got cast in all these women's parts, though he's very good at them, who always just wanted to be a character actor. So I did watch everything 
that all of these people were in also. So I got a sense of their performances. So if you look at if you look at Divine's, the sad thing is you see he was about to play a gay man and a man on a regular TV show when he died of heart failure. So I think that they appear in these films that have become, that weren't at the time, but became, except for Pink Flamingo's cult favorites, um, constrained what kind of acting they were ever allowed to do. Offset, Divine was completely the opposite of the kind of raging, crazed, celebrity-seeking criminal at the end of this movie. Devon was very quiet, very well-mannered, and what I thought was really, really touching, everybody liked Divine. Divine did, you know, have problems managing money, they would tell me about, but Divine was a sweetheart, and he was everybody's favorite uncle. So the, all the children of the Dreamlanders adored Divine. And Dave Inslee, the assistant camera guy, has this, had this great in, anecdote about how on a subsequent film set when he had a little baby and he was actually then doing the whole camera. So he didn't have to worry about John zooming all the time. Um, <laughs> and he his wife was working the craft table on this particular film. There was no craft table. They didn't have the money for that. Uh, but the little baby was crying and divine playing a woman. Then again, polyester just took the baby into his, her arms and suckled the baby to his breast <laughs> and the baby just shut up. It was happy as a little clam. <laughs> Divine had a, a soothing way. Yeah. Um, well, then let's, let's, let's expand then to the, to the rest of the cast. Like you asked um, the one, the other performer that I don't know for me kind of caught my attention was Mink Stoll as Taffy uh, because <laughs> she shows up and in, in when you first see her like Mink Stoll as Taffy, she shows up in a very inopportune moment when they're having, I think you described it as toolkit sex. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I'm described it. Yeah. <laughs> but I also did like, um, you know, her, her car crash uh, when she was playing car crash and then of course kind of her transformation at the end can you can you describe because it seems like like Stoll had to there was a lot of range with Taffy as a character there is a lot of range in terms of physicality with Taffy as a character and that character is one of the three with Edith Matthews Aunt Ida that has a character arc the others are kind of cartoon flat stock types in a way like the stock types on acid let's put it that way they're they're crazier than a stock character all of them but uh, Mink is a wonderful actor she's several times appeared in Tennessee Williams plays and she has range and thinks about and crafts her characters the things she didn't have range in in this film is voicing because it is she screams all the time because mm. the sound recording equipment was not good divine was very loud and 
boisterous and center of attention. And to keep up, she said, I just have to shout. So, uh, and John was encouraging everyone to shout because he had more dialogue in this film than on any other. So he wanted his lines to be heard. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, but Mink does go from being the tragic, neglected little girl who's told that she has the face of a retarded brat. Not a nice thing to say, even when you are interrupting your mother and her (laughs) husband having toolkit sex. Uh, (laughs) To then, in a liberated sense, despite having been forbidden to do this, playing car crash in the living room of her mother's apartment. Whoops. (laughs) Someone sounded like they dropped out. Um, (laughs) And then at the end, being the Hare Krishna, kind of the goody-goody girl, uh, which was the part of the performance that she didn't like. She, John credits her with being the best of any of his villains. But as I say, she also, if you watch her and on stage, I really think somebody should do a book on Mink Stoll if she'd agree. And she has, she's a great singer. I'd love to hear her perform. Uh, she's got her own band that she puts together and she's kind of a torch song singer. She did, she like John Waters does shows around Christmas time and, and performs as herself as well as performing characters. Yeah. And, and so, you know, then the third one who's notorious but was beloved, now deceased, so I didn't get to interview her, was Edith Massey as Mm -hmm. Aunt Ida, who every single person I interviewed on the cast, on the crew, and John himself did impressions of Edith. (laughs) (laughs) She's actually who most stuck out to me that I wanted to talk about because having watched Pink Flamingos the day before, she's also in that movie and she's basically a set piece. Mm -hmm. She's in a crib playing um, Divine's mother the whole time, but she's the one in the crib and Divine's the one teaching her about life, even though she's playing her mother. It's a very bizarre thing. And she kind of, toward by the end of this movie is doing a similar thing. She's, in the cage and has become almost a set piece and, as well. And, and and that is fortuitous because Edith, though she had had a bit of training herself, um, really couldn't remember lines. Mm-hmm. So she would do everything she could. She'd write them on her hand. Uh, she unfortunately mixed up his stage directions. So she stayed the stage directions while she was reading her lines. And then they'd have to retake the whole thing. Cause remember it was just all one take. Um, so I, I teased John. I said, John, it must've been such a leap relief for you when you put her in the cage and gagged her. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure it was because, you know, she was very well-intentioned. She desperately wanted to please. She she really wanted to be a star at any of the premieres. She'd be outside in the cold hawking the film saying, Hi, Han, come in and watch me in the movies. (laughs) 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 Trying to corral everyone to go inside and see herself. (laughs) 
they all became obsessed with this idea of celebrity in a way. Yeah. Uh, Well, it seems like that's kind of... Yeah, I was just going to also give a lot of credit to David Lockery as Donald Dasher. Because you watch him in all of the films, watch him in Multiple Maniacs, watch him in Pink Flamingos, watch him in this one, and, and then, unfortunately, he overdoses. But he's a really incredible performer also. And he too is somebody who worked in the alternative theater scene. So a lot of them were outside their own Baltimore box up to New York, over to San Francisco. Uh, Well, I wanted to ask about um, this film and kind of it's, it's a, you know, this idea of celebrity that these characters kind of have, Uh, you know, I, I, in in the book, it seemed like, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, it seemed like, like John Waters, people really saw him as having this, this strong satirist voice. And it didn't seem like he necessarily, uh, you know, took to that, to that, you know, proclamation of himself. Um, you know, what, what, what did you think of that? And kind of, what did you think of a female trouble as this, this satire of celebrity in, in kind of celebrity culture? I actually disagree. I think he relished being compared to Voltaire and Jonathan Swift and all these really high art figures who he had read. This was a time in the 60s, Grove Press was very big. So any any one of us who lived in the 60s, these were the books you read. This is where Jean Genet was published. This is, uh, you know, all of the cutting edge work is coming out. And he's reading this. He's an autodidact. He might have gotten kicked out of NYU, but that doesn't mean he knows any less about film. He knows more about film because he was watching four or five movies a day. Um, Same thing. You walk in his house, there are books everywhere. He's always reading. He's constantly reading papers. And he was keeping up with what was happening in the U.S. So he's very conscious of himself as a commentator on contemporary U.S. culture still today. So now if he describes himself as a filth elder, it's (laughs) to get the goat of people like Donald Trump and Mike Pence, who he thinks is even worse and scarier than Donald Trump. So because he because he's more rational. Uh, So he's still invested in using humor he never preaches is using humor to get his ideas across and i just saw on facebook today that he was asked to say in 10 words what his life philosophy was and i'm not sure i can remember all of it but i think he came in in nine which is don't judge others be curious and don't accept answers or something like that so He's still working away at digging his one of his longest time friends, Channing, said to Wilroy, said to me, you know, he just wants to get his fingers into the eye of people who are not thinking right. And and that's what he does, which is what I really admire. I think he's I think he's really political in a good way in that he's very tolerant and what he sees as the obsession with celebrity would just as well apply to a Trump-esque figure today, don't you think? True. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think he, he, he does that or – you know, how, how does you think that he accomplishes that, that with female trouble? 
this kind of satirization? Uh, the Dashers are two villainous upper class beauty salon owners take Dawn under their wing and convince her that though she's overweight, uh, she's really beautiful and that crime is good. And that's a reversal that goes all the way back to Rabelais, to Bakhtine, to its 16th century and even before. So he's known these things. That this is what he liked about the book. He says, oh, you compared me to all these people. And I feel like this is my, my most academic work to date, in fact. Um, I got to trot out my knowledge of everything. He was like, he called me on the phone and he said, and it has Antonin Artaud. I love it. Um, but it's true. They're all part of it. Uh, and in the U.S., what you find, I read a ton of histories of the 60s and the 70s to write the book, too. You find that in the 60s, our notion in the U.S. of celebrity starts to change. It's in part the impact of increasing kinds of mass media. So TV, the TV president, first TV president, JFK, Richard Nixon, um, and that on. Now it's multiplied. Now we've got all the online forms that celebrity can latch in onto and take off in. So I, I think he's quite aware of all of those things. One of the things that you talk about in the book is how you feel like the film has been, and I think this could probably apply to a lot of Water's work, um, has been sort of pigeonholed into this status as merely a cult object. Um, and you, you talk about how um, the social and historical context of the time really informed it. And, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about that beyond celebrity, if there are... Uh, specific issues or just things that were happening um, that water Waters was absorbing and, and putting into this film. Yeah. Okay. So let me start with gay, and I think it's I think it's a very queer film as I started mm -hmm. off by saying, but it, and it's for Waters and for it's in every gay lesbian his film history gives it credit, um, but for Waters it's the sensibility that's gay. There are gay characters but they are not typical gay characters at all and he consistently cross cast so we would have straight people like George Figgs has had more girlfriends than you could shake a stick at um, and <laughs> George is one of the gayest of the hairdressers um, so he had cast George in that way he has Bob Adams who admittedly is gay but is nothing like a queen play on Nellie Queen and Bob was really really upset at having to do that initially because he thought oh my god there go all my boyfriends um, and it, it, he has Edith Massey play a lesbian which is the furthest thing from Edith's mind and on and on and on so I think it was not a gay movie at the time you have a lot of people talking about the hippies and how dress styles change and I know this because I was part of that um, where the men are having long hair it's unisex fashions everybody's in love beads women have long hair no bras uh, and and there's just a great deal more freedom than the kind of buttoned up distinction of 
of the 50s in which everybody was raised where the men had suits and the women had flared or pencil skirts and buttoned up collars. Uh, and, and so there's a different sexuality that comes out that is much more open. It's a time when People are experimenting, so I think it still happens in college for sure. But there really was a push to go out and have an affair, and it's pre-AIDS, so nobody, and pre-knowledge even of chlamydia or other STDs. So that's when you start seeing a lot of STDs because of this. But everybody's like, oh, yeah, free love. And, yeah, let's see what it's like to be with somebody of the same sex or with multiple sexual partners. Mind you, this was a percentage of American youth. Mm -hmm. This was not all American youth, but it was Waters and it was my, my set of people. So that's where I think the gay needs to be in context more because it's part of that time and the same thing's happening in the theatrical world you have the coquettes where you have straight people cross-dressing uh you have the beginnings of transvestite transgender now called uh, play rights and groups like Hot Peaches in New York uh, and the Theaters of the Ridiculous in New York. So it's all part and parcel of, very importantly, an anti-Vietnam, pro-civil rights, pro-feminist, emerging leftist political climate that's happening. This is cultural, political climate. Mm. Uh, I, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, and you talk about it at length in the book, um, but it seemed like like Female Trouble captured these these labels of, this is, you know, it's a gay movie or a queer movie or a cult movie. Um, and, you know, it, it, it seemed like, you know, of course, you know, they, when they talked about it now they're you know when they were making it that's not it didn't seem like that's what they were going for they weren't they weren't going to you know out to make a gay movie or a cult movie they were just making you know the movie that they that they wanted to uh you know what do you think of the, these labels that have seemed to to attach themselves to female troubles in the years since it came out do you feel like any of them i mean you you talked a little bit about it, you know gay being a part of this but uh, especially cult movie. You, what, how do you feel about that label? I, well, I think it, I th- I think it totally has become a cult movie because I don't think that cult movies are ever just born. It takes mm-hmm. audiences to make a movie a cult movie. This was not Pink Flamingos was originally a cult movie. It played midnight, played New York for two years. People lined up around the block for two years. Come rain, come shine, come snow, come sleet to see Pink Flamingos on repeat viewings, like bringing their friends to see Divine Eat Dog Shit. <clears throat> um, this was not. This was played mainstream times in New York, and it didn't have that long of a run. But it has been released around the world. I don't think in Latin America. I've never seen any VHS or, or uh, DVD covers there, but I've seen a ton of them from Japan, from Hong Kong, from China, from around Europe. I don't think Africa. Uh, but it's had all these re-releases, and so people in the 80s when VHS comes along could turn their friends onto it and watch it again and again. In the 90s when 
DVD comes along and now more recently Blu-ray or online viewings, you can watch it easily. And his dialogue is so quotable, like you quoted, Nathan, to begin with. Don Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich right out in class. So (laughs) you, you get it and you get and, and it's the intonation that goes along with it, just like Rocky Horror Picture Show, that makes you want to say it along with yeah. the lines. Um, you know? the, real quickly, but and then I'll, I'll toss it back to everybody else to kind of have a final question. But the one thing I'm, I'm really curious about, and you've, you've taught this for a number of years, um, how do, how do uh, you know, college-age students react to this movie in in 2017 and you know kind of in the 21st century uh because even though i I feel like for the most part um the you know millennial generation is very uh is is very pro you know pro lgbt all you know all of that it's a very un-pc movie you know there's a lot of lines that uh and, and you know, it, it, today you know you have that line um, that one of Don's friends has about about uh, you know I'm I'm so glad I had that abortion uh, and, and stuff like that. That seems to, right. it, it, that seems to uh, I don't that would definitely not play in theaters in in, in 2017. You know what? How do how, how do you, how do you feel like students have reacted to it today? Well, that's one line, and I don't think he would write that line today. But I think many of the politically incorrect lines that he intentionally writes like you know uh, if you don't shut up Kathy Davenport I'm going to whip you with this car aerial um, you know that very on PC uh, I I think it nonetheless plays because it's outrageous so it made today seem camp that was the other word that you know I take issue with that I was not intentionally camp at the time it didn't fit with what was camp at the time in some ways it's very realistic the high school stuff is extremely realistic my high school was just like that (laughs) scarily enough you know Um, you know we were all smoking in the bathrooms and so I, I think the film teaching it for Decades. Can't remember the first time I taught it, but everybody always goes at about the same time. It's still (laughs) predictable when that gasp is going to come in from female troubled virgins who haven't seen it before. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get the, like, your knowing chuckle, Nathan, like... I bet I know what that was. And, you know, when you heard it in class, if you'd seen it first, (laughs) you then go like, yeah, I knew that was going to get them. (laughs) Uh, So it's sort of you feel like an insider to it once you've seen it once. So it becomes yours, which is what makes it cult and pleasurable in that way. I'm sure some of the students in my classes have forever been scarred by this film. And I'm proud of it. (laughs) But I do think that uh, many, many of the students who ever signed up for my classes kind of self-selected because they already knew what they were in for. (laughs) So, So rather quickly, though, this was never the first film I showed. By the time it rolled around to Female Trouble, was it that much of a shock that I was teaching female trouble reads laughing? Well, 
when I took your class last year, we had just watched John Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence. The That's a perfect match. Yep, the class period before. And I had talked to you about it after class. And I told you it was my first Cassavetti's film and that I really liked it. And then you go, have you seen a Waters film? And I'm like, no. And I didn't know much about him at that point. And I'm sitting here in my head and I'm like, okay, is it going to be anything like Cassavetti's? And then I walk in and they couldn't be more opposite both in terms of runtime and style and but they're both about crazy oh, women exactly and they're both fantastic but still <laughs> they're really and and then pairing it with umbrellas of cherbourg mm. i think that was another it seems like my subconscious forces me to make these matches because i think they'll program well together (laughs) (laughs) she's just like it's all about wallpaper today class Mm -hmm. (laughs) um as we kind of wind down does anybody have any final questions how do you think it will play in hong kong if i go teach there I think uh, some of those taboos that are broken cross uh, national borders. Okay. I I feel like it has probably an international shock appeal. (laughs) (laughs) I would think so, too. Yeah. Uh, Chris, the last thing I wanted to ask was... uh, if you wouldn't, if you don't mind, um, would you could you talk a little bit? Of, it seemed like you had a real personal connection to the movie, um, and it seemed like you know, j- judging from the book, that it really had a you know an impact uh, at a, you know a point in your life. Do you, would you mind kind of talking about that? Totally, love to, because um, I was I was an undergraduate at the University of Maryland at College Park, and that's just an hour away from Baltimore, so John would premiere Pink Flamingos. And this is partially funded by the guy who directed the Maryland Cinematheque. Um, So these things would show on our campus. And I think the reason that I had such great response from everybody, they were all happy to talk to me. And it word went round, like Chris Homeland is fun, she gets it. Uh, They would spend hours talking to me because we had been to the same demonstrations. We'd done the same drugs, <laughs> uh, you know, and we had the same politics, basically. So they really, really opened up and they were extremely generous. And I feel like I'm an I've been told I'm an honorary dreamlander, which to me is an amazing compliment because uh, I really do respect their work and I think they still continue to do really good work in a lot of ways Um, so in art and working with social movements and and so on and on so they 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 remain they're in their 70s now they're still zany and they're still great and they don't open like this to everyone as Bob Adams said to me quoting from Pink Flamingos he said, you know, there's that line that Mink stole says, um, there are two kinds of people, Miss Sandy Sandstone. There's my kind of people and there are assholes and you're an asshole. And he said, we've had a lot of experience with assholes. So you can imagine that given the kinds of stuff they were willing to do, they probably did have a lot of experiences with assholes. Um, well, Chris Holman, thank you so much for talking with us. It was uh, very enlightening. 
And great to great to hear your voice, Nathan. And <laughs> thanks, good to hear yours too. Back. And <laughs> hope to hope to get a chance to talk with all of you again. So let me know. I'm going to do something. I think on polyester, and I wouldn't mind si- a side trip to the Beguiled. Mm. That's a fabulous film too okay well well, you you definitely have a standing offer here at Cinematary Uh, again everybody if you would like to check out the book Female Trouble a queer film classic um, you can probably find it at your local library but it is also available on Amazon and other booksellers and that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary you can find us on social media at Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinematary on Twitter at handle at Cinematary and on letterbox.com at letterbox.com slash Cinematary where you, where you can see all of the uh, movies that we talked about in this episode next week is going to be we're going to be since we just finished up our young critic series we're going to be taking a few weeks of just kind of random subjects uh we'll, we'll you know announce those at the end of each episode as we kind of lead up to our october horror series which of course happens in october probably a little earlier at late september but uh our first special episode uh that we're really excited about if if you are a fan of movie podcasts you definitely need to check this one out and you'll notice that there is a small you know a small similarity between us and this podcast as wendy mays of the pet cinematary yes pet cinematary podcast is going to be joining us next week to talk about kiki's delivery service the 19 i believe 89 90 91 uh hayao miyazaki movie uh which includes a black cat named Gigi. so we uh, uh if you if you've listened to Wendy's podcast before, she talks about the movie and, and kind of relates it. And it talks about the animal uh, that is, is central to the movie. And so we'll get into, you know, longer discussion on that. But I recommend if you uh, if you want to get an idea of, of what Wendy's podcast is like, again, Pet Cinematary, uh, give that a subscribe and and listen to an episode. But she'll be joining us for part two to talk about Kiki's delivery service. We're very excited about that. Uh, but until then. I guess we will uh, see you later. Thank you for listening. Mm